Father, uh, I am struck this morning by those words, leaning on the everlasting arms. I thank you for that hymn, Father. I thank you for its reminder that in Christ we have nothing to dread. We have nothing to fear. In Christ, there is nothing that anyone or any collection of people or anything in this world can do to us would harm would be worse or, or more significant to us than the eternal blessings found in your Son, Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear in Christ, nothing to dread in Christ. And I thank you, Father, for that. I thank you for another hymn. At Calvary, our sins are put away. At Calvary, we are reminded of the great love you have for those, all who will ever come to you, Father. You are saving them because of what happened at Calvary. And Lord, though Jesus not physically be here right now, you have left us an immense treasure. Not only do we have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in the hearts of all who believe, but we have your written word which your spirit uses to make people alive and to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So, Father, help us not take the next few minutes for granted. You have ordained this time to speak to your people through your word. And I pray that me being the vessel for that this morning, you would just use me as you would. I pray, Father, that uh, in as much as my personality or or rhetorical skills are concerned, get them out of the way, Father, and talk to your people so that you might be praised among the saints at Bethlehem. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, take your Bible. Join me in turning back to the Gospel of Luke. And today we begin a new chapter, Luke eight eighteen. Of course, as I often try to remind myself and remind you at the beginning of our uh, trips through Luke, why did he write this? He wrote this so that the lover of God might know the exact truth about the things we've been taught and specifically about Jesus. And so it is our desire, it's my desire for us this morning that we know our great God and Savior. And this morning we come to another one of the Lord's parables. And it is one that is often referenced in sermons about prayer. And it's definitely about prayer. But in studying this and thinking through how I've thought about this particular text in the past, I get the feeling that most of the time when we think through this parable, we don't connect all the dots that the Spirit intends for us to connect. And that's why going through Luke in sequential order, line by line, verse by verse, has been good for us. And it's fruitful for us because it helps us connect those dots that the Spirit ordains. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to read now Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. 
And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will God not bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? It is sometimes said that the most common lie people tell each other is, I love you. And it might be true. Probably is true. Grievously, it might even be true for those who name themselves as Christians. Who say that Jesus Christ is their Lord. But as I was thinking through this text this week, it occurred to me, and actually I was thinking through it last week too because we didn't meet last week. There's probably another lie that's right up there with it, if not more so among Christians, and it's, I'll pray for you. It's been my experience when someone expresses some sort of prayer request, some sort of need, that we may be quick to say, I'll pray for you, or I'm praying for you, but many times we actually don't ever get around to doing the praying. And I know that I have been, I've been guilty of that in my life. One thing I've tried to do to stop doing that is instead of saying, I will pray for you, I, I try to more often these days say, can I pray for you right now? Because for one thing, I know that if I'm not in a position to write something down, there's a decent chance I'll forget. I was telling my wife to remind me to do something later this afternoon because I'll probably forget. Especially on a Sunday. Things slip my mind on Sundays. That and the world just gets in our way. We become very busy. We are coming and we are going. There is so much going on in our lives that from a fleshly, worldly perspective, it's easy to forget and forsake prayer. That said, when we do pray, we pray for a lot of things, just as both the Old and the New Testament instructs us to. Uh, we pray for people. We pray about their needs. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for families grieving deaths. We pray for our nation. We, we pray for an incoming president, just as we are to pray for our, our leaders and all who are in authority. That's what First Timothy 2 tells us to do. We pray for our nation, just as in the Old Testament we see the example of prayers being made for Israel. So too are we to pray for our nation. More personally, we, we pray that, God, will you please deliver me from this trial? Will you please deliver me from, from this situation I'm in? We might pray that our circumstances be better. We might pray for a better job. We might pray for more financial security. We might pray for a, family, a, a, a better family situation. We might pray because there's a conflict with another person or, or, or more than one person. But one thing we, we need to be praying about more is our own repentance, our own recognition of God's glory, our own recognition of the holiness of God and how far we fall short of it. We need to be praying that God might cause us to follow Him more closely. We need to be praying that God might instill in us a fresh zeal for evangelism. 
We need to be praying that our members might proclaim the gospel more. We, we pray for our church. We need to be doing that more and more and more. I am praying for salvations in 2017. I'm praying for baptisms in 2017. We all need to be praying that a disciple-making culture might form among our members. We, uh, the, a culture in which disciple-making becomes an ordinary part of the life of everybody here at Bethlehem. Those are all good and all necessary things that we either regularly pray for or need to be doing more. And God loves that. God longs to hear the prayers of His children. But there is one prayer request which too often gets forsaken. One we too often forget to bring up, to think about, much less pray about. Because oftentimes we are so focused on the here and now. We take our eyes off of eternity. We need to be praying for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be praying for the return of our Savior that is promised throughout Scripture. It is promised in the Old Testament. It is promised in the New Testament. It is promised in all kinds of different books, all kinds of different genres but in both Testaments. You know, my son and I were debating a few days ago what movie we think has the best ending. We saw the new Star Wars movie in December. We loved the ending. So we were talking, what movie has a better ending than that. Because we remember endings, don't we? We are a culture that remembers how things finish. A great sports contest is defined not so much by a team blowing somebody out 103 to 73, but it's about that last second three-pointer, that last second shot, that last touchdown. Movies are the same way. Books are the same way. You, you, you read a book and if the ending's flat, you, you feel flat at the end. Endings leave a mark with us. So it stands to reason that how the Bible finishes should matter to us. And what does the Scripture say in Revelation 22 verses 20 and 21? It says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Beloved, that's how the Bible ends. It goes out with a bang and it goes out with a prayer for Jesus to come back. We're so concerned with how are we going to fix the problems that we don't pray enough for the one who fixes all the problems to come back. And maybe before, when you've read Luke 18, 1-8, you've heard it preached in connection, you know, maybe the connection between this parable and the return of Christ isn't explicit. But if you've got your Bible open, look back to what Jesus is talking about at the end of chapter 17. He's talking about His return. And we talked about this the week before Christmas how the second coming of Christ is foretold by Him. So between that and the last verse we did read, verse 8 here in 18, it becomes clear that this parable, Jesus is teaching His people should be persistently praying for Him to come back. 
So the first thing I want you to see, beloved, is the parable itself. The story is fictional. But the... The, the, to those listening, it would have been a familiar situation. It would have been very real. There was a judge, Jesus says, who did not fear God nor respect man. He was not a religious judge. He was a civil judge. He's not one who made interpretations about what the law meant, but he is one who made interpretations about how it applied to everyday life. He didn't try to interpret the meaning of the, the Old Testament law or the, all those traditions that they had added on. But how do you apply these things to everyday life? And his judgments would be like those of civil judges today. They would have had a profound practical impact on the lives of individuals whose cases came under his purview. Scripture describes the ideal judge. And I wish every judge today would read 2 Chronicles 19, verses 6 and 7. King Jehoshaphat of Judah reigning 850 years before Christ established judges. And what did he tell them? He said, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you and when you, when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Perhaps all of our judges should read that and take an oath these days. But uh, judges, if as we read this here, had two main motivations to show justice. A healthy fear of God on the one hand and a respect for humanity on the other. Or to put it another way, in their judgments they were to exemplify the two greatest commandments that Jesus spoke of. Love the Lord your God with basically everything you've got. And love your neighbor as yourself. That would be ideal. Both then and now. However, Israel and Judah, the Jews of Jesus' day, were very familiar with corrupt judges. The Talmud is a collection of of writings, Jewish writings from the 2nd century. And it describes corrupt judges of ignorance, arbitrariness, and covetousness so that for a dish of meat they would pervert justice. And that's what the judge in this parable was like. He didn't love God. He didn't respect man. Even in an honor and shame culture such as first century Israel, he had no shame. He did not care if others thought him corrupt as long as his pockets were lined. As long as he had what he wanted, as long as he was taken care of, nothing was going to force him to do what was right. So in verse 3, in comes a widow from that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me protection, legal protection for my opponent. Now this widow had apparently been defrauded by somebody, So as a result, she's got no means of taking care of herself. And the reason I say that, she had no man, no husband, no son either. And the reason I say that is because the courts in Israel were for men. And a woman didn't come to plead a case toward a judge unless there was no man available to plead her case for her. So she had no husband, she has no son So Jesus is making it clear, this woman is absolutely powerless from a a, a social-political standpoint. 
from, from a standpoint of having any influence whatsoever. She's destitute. She's alone. She's being taken advantage of. She's relatively unloved. So that makes her absolutely desperate. This when the Old Testament clearly taught that widows were to be protected. Widows were to be afforded both justice and mercy. In Exodus 22.22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. God would exact vengeance upon those who did. Anyone who oppressed a widow, according to Deuteronomy 27.19, was cursed by God. And the law of Moses is full of protections for widows. We see those come into play in the book of Ruth. Naomi and Ruth are both widows. And through the means of God's law, the, 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 the kinsman redeemer comes into play in Ruth. Protection for a widow. In Isaiah 1 verse 17, they were to plead or contend for the widow. So based upon what the law Said And based upon what the prophets said, this judge was bound to in some way help this woman. Yet she kept coming because he kept refusing to do so. But she did keep coming. And she kept coming. And she kept coming. And so verse 4 states, For a while he was unwilling, but she eventually wore him down. And he admits to himself... I mean, what kind of person admits to himself, I don't fear God nor respect man? But that's what the judge in this, this uh, parable does. He's vile enough not even pretend, to pretend to himself that he's better than he really is. He knows who he is. But the widow kept coming, and he's bothered by her. He didn't want to be bothered by her anymore. So he said, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And that phrase, wear out, it literally means to strike in the face, to treat roughly. Paul uses that phrase, that word, in 1 Corinthians 9 when he's talking about the discipline he takes upon his own body. I discipline my body and make it my slave, Paul writes. He's beating himself in the face. He's basically beating his body. So in the parable, we've got an awful judge who doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. He no doubt took bribes. Uh, He was arbitrary. He was covetous. He exemplifies the worst of the worst of Jesus' day as far as judges go. But the widow figuratively beats him up. Even though women were politically powerless in that culture, they were still to be respected. They were still to be honored. And so in the end, the seemingly powerless woman wears down the seemingly impervious judge who ends up giving her justice. So why did Jesus tell this story? Well, that's the second thing I want you to see, the reason for the parable. And and for that, we go back to verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. At all times they were to pray and not to lose heart. You know, this is one of those times, we're going to see it again later, one of those times Luke gives us the point of the parable before the parable itself. And when we connect verse 1 with the last part of verse 17, Jesus' point is that if you belong to Him, if you are His disciple, you are to be continually praying and not losing heart as you wait for Him to come back. 
as you wait for Him to come back. You know, because Jesus knew there would be a long interval between His first coming and His second coming. None of the apostles were given the time. They write in the New Testament as though it could happen at any time. But there are inclinations. They even know it'll be a while. But still there's this sense of urgency in everything they write. And that's how we are, that's because that's how we are to live. If God told us, I'm going to come back in 2017 in February, we would take all the time we have up to that point and kind of do what we want. God wants us to live for Him now. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus knew that in men's measurement of time, it'd be a while. A day is as a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is as a day. Second Peter 3 verse 8. He knew it would be a long interval and we're at 2,000 years almost now. He would be blasphemed during that time. The Word of God would be misused and abused and twisted and ignored and rebelled against. He knew many of His disciples would be and still are killed for their faith in Jesus. I read a a very troubling article last night about persecution of Christians today. It's alarming what's going on in North Korea and in Africa. It still happens today. He knew what was in man, John 2.25. He knew what was in man. And so he knew when saying all of this that until his second coming, sinners are going to sin. Sinners would sin and the world would be filled with sin. So it would be a long and wearying interval for those who follow Him. And sometimes you look at the news and you just want to scream. Why are you letting this happen, Lord? You you see the direction in which our society continues to spiral and you just want to throw up your hands. Sometimes you look at pews that are more empty than full and you want to give up. But Peter, or rather Jesus, tells this parable so that while he is away, you will continue to pray and not to lose heart. Beloved, my question for you right now is when you are facing discouragement, when you are facing rejection, when you are facing opposition, when you are facing temptation, when you are facing fill in the blank, do you sulk And complain? Or do you long for Christ? I'm talking about your everyday life here. Do you long for Christ? Because Jesus' point here is that prayer is one of the ways of bringing about His second coming. God uses our prayers as a means to His end. And He wants us to pray in accordance with Philippians 2.13 because He's going to do His good will and His good pleasure. But He wants His people to pray. And so this parable is a call from Jesus to all who follow Him, knowing this would be preserved in His Word for us to read. It is a call for you to crave the coming of Jesus Christ. Just as your stomach aches for food when you are hungry, so should your soul ache and groan for Jesus to come back. And can any of us say this morning that we long for Christ like this? 
The Word of God tells us, beloved, that the reality of Jesus' second coming is meant to comfort us. Paul comforted believers in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, There were believers in that church in Thessalonica who feared they might have missed the second coming. And so Paul told them, The dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord. And if that hasn't happened yet, don't worry, you haven't missed the second coming of Christ. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, he says. The doctrine of Jesus' return is meant to comfort us. It also produces holiness. Craving the return of Christ produces a holiness in us. When your confidence is in a Savior who's going to come back, beloved, the pull of the present world begins to lose its power. It begins to fade away and it will compel your heart to follow Jesus now. To love the Lord's appearing, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. By the way, just before he was martyred. John puts it like this, 1 John 3 verse 2. And this is several decades after Jesus had ascended into heaven. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. That, that verb fixed, you think of a camera fixing its zoom upon the subject of the photograph. Is the, is the lens of your heart focused on Christ this morning and focused on His return? Hope in your eternal future compels a heart for Christ to follow Him more closely in the present. Is your hope fixed on Jesus this morning, beloved? Because if it is, the doctrine of Jesus' second coming also provokes an evangelistic spirit. It provokes an evangelistic spirit because thinking about what is to come, for the believer, that means eternity in, in, in a new heaven and a new earth. It means forever enjoying the blessings of God. But for the one who remains in his or her sins, dead in his or her sins, it means Eternity in the lake of fire and suffering the righteous judgments of God. And those realities, beloved, should provoke if we truly love God and if we truly love our neighbors as ourselves, it should provoke us to be bold in proclaiming what is to come. It ought to provoke in us a greater evangelistic spirit so that more might turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. That's why he told this parable. So that they would continue to pray and not lose heart. Not lose their heart for him in the midst of the wearying interval. And he explained it more in in verses 6-8. through Here's the explanation. Look at 6-8. through And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. You see, because the judge here was an arrogant, corrupt, careless, selfish man. But in the end, he was worn down, (coughs) worn down 
by the persistent cries of someone for whom he had no love and no respect and nothing to gain from either. So what Jesus does here is he argues from the lesser to the greater. If this unrighteous judge did that, will God not bring justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? The elect, beloved, literally the chosen ones who in John 6.37 are those whom the Father gives the Son and they all come to the Son. Or they are those in Matthew 11.27 Jesus is speaking of when He says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. They are those in 2 Timothy 1.9, those whom God has saved and called, quote, with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His purpose and grace, which was granted us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. And so who are these chosen ones? Well, beloved, this morning, if you have repented of your sins and if you are entrusting to Jesus all that you are, all that you have, and all that you ever will be, they are you. If you are doing that. But in Luke 18, we get a clear sign as to who these people are. They are those who cry out to God day and night. They are those who crave Jesus. They are those who long for Him. Do you this morning cry out for God? And that isn't to say, do you pray nonstop 24 hours a day, 7 days a week? But as Jesus put it in Luke 17, 22, last chapter, are you longing to see one of the days of the Son of Man? Are you first Corinthians or first Thessalonians 1:10 eagerly awaiting God's son from heaven? Are you crying out to him for him to send his son back to make all things right? This needs to be a part of our all the time prayers, beloved. You know, we ought to put this in the bulletin. Come, Lord Jesus. God, send your son back. That's a sign of the elect. That's a sign of those who truly belong to Jesus, those who are saved. And will He delay long over them? Literally, will He be patient over them? The meaning of that phrase, according to one commentator, is that God has delayed for a long time His eschatological, that's His end times wrath, in order to extend His mercy in gathering all those who will ever come to Him. That's what 2 Peter 3 verse 9 is talking about. It's an often misunderstood verse. But the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is delaying His Son's return just long enough for all whom He has given the Son to come to Him. And once they have, will He delay long over them? No, He will come. He will come as the ultimate salvation of all who have ever believed. He will come as the holy, righteous judge upon all who have refused Him. Leading to the fourth thing to think about this morning, and that's the question, verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, 
will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes back, will he find anyone who is faithfully, eagerly praying for that return? Will he find any, again, 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, who are loving his appearing? Will he find any, 1 Corinthians 22, crying out, Maranatha, come Lord. You know, these days, beloved, eschatology, the, the study of last things, end times, it's often scorned at as the purview of the sensational. I've even made light of some of the books I have on end times. There's a couple in our library here, and there's more in my library at home. I've made light of some of these things. And, and to be quite frank, there are those who speculate and sell books. And many have and many still will. And for that reason, the study of last things is dismissed as having little practical value and little value to how you live your life today. But what we see in the Bible is that that's just not true. If anything, we read from the prophets, we read from Paul, we read from Peter, we read from John, and even from the lips of Jesus Himself that His coming again has everything to do with how we live our lives now. So are we continually praying to God for His return now? Are we longing for Him now? Knowing how history ends and how eternity continues is what gives us the hope and confidence to know that a verse like Romans 8.18 is true. That the sufferings of this present are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. So the question is, when the Son of Man comes, are you one of those chosen ones? Will He find faith in you? Will Jesus find you longing for Him when He comes back? Or will you hide your face in shame? You don't have to hide your face in shame. This morning, if you're not longing for Christ, you can be sure of an eternity in Christ by repenting of your sins, by recanting your own self-righteousness and falling on your face before Him. By humbly obeying His call, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus bids you to come to Him. Whether or not you obey that is the question. Do you long for Him like that? You can come and make that public in obedience to Scripture as we sing, and I encourage you to do that if that is the case. But may we all, beloved, be the faithful. May God's chosen ones live as such. May the Lord be pleased to find us praying. May the Lord be pleased to find us continuing in prayer even in the face of evil and sadness and terror and discouragement and suffering and death, not losing heart. Not losing heart. Because His love for His own abounds. And the lost whom He saves, no one can snatch them out of His hand. He keeps them forever and ever and ever. So may we pray to that end. Crave Christ.
long for His return. Cry out to God. And He will, He's promised to, to honor that request. That's one request. We don't know when it will be fully accomplished, but we know it will be fully accomplished. And if we have that confidence, what can the world do to us that Christ cannot overcome? May we be faithful now. Let's pray. Father, our most forsaken prayer request is for your son to return. And we get so wrapped up today, we forget that in Christ we have a secure today and a secure tomorrow and a secure forever. And we confess this morning our failure to pray for Jesus' return reflects hearts which don't treasure you the way we should. We don't treasure you the way we should, Father. We need to treasure you much more. Sometimes, Lord, we sing about how you are more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds, and how nothing we desire compares with you. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would make those words true in our hearts. May we live up to the aspirations of that song. Calls us to long for Jesus, producing us comfort, an intensive and extensive holiness, Father, and a much greater zeal to tell others the truth about you and them. Give us the persistence of the widow in the face of a world filled with those who don't fear you nor respect men. Make us realize, Father, that we are the widow. We are helpless. We are destitute. But you are the righteous one. We thank you, Father, that you will bring justice. And we pray along with the apostles, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.